return to the Herb Mendelssohn story on what would have been Herb's 89th birthday. Herb Mendelssohn died nearly two years ago in December of 2020. This might seem like it will be a difficult episode. We all know when somebody dies, there's a big part of you that wishes you could have kept them alive forever. The person who has left us has left a larger-than-life hole that can't ever truly be filled. But still, life goes on. You find moments where you forget and moments where it just doesn't hurt as much, and you find joy in the old stories. So, in this final episode, on a day we used to celebrate with cake and candles, we'd like to bring you some of those final memories and stories about Herb's life and the time he spent with the people he loved that have brought us joy since his passing. Herbie died in December 2020 after 87 years of loving deeply, laughing loudly, and fighting many health battles from heart disease to cancer to the virus that finally conquered him and so many others, COVID-19. His death was heartbreaking, but his life was not a tragedy. He is remembered fondly by many. This is the Herb Mendelssohn story. Episode 7, The Long Goodbye. Anyone who knows Herbie knows his work ethic went deeper than financial need. Herb continued to see patients until March 2020, just months before his passing, because he loved healing people, connecting with his patients, and the people with whom he worked. Here are a few more stories from those people who saw him at one of his very happiest places, starting with Herb's daughter-in-law and fellow orthopedic surgeon, Alice Mendelssohn. So Herb loves people. He loves to help people. He definitely enjoys what he does. He loves his job. I don't know if in the beginning when he went to medical school, if he had this plan to be an orthopedic surgeon, but somewhere along the way, that's what he decided and went to. And he loved it. He loves to work with his hands and orthopedics is very manual. He loves to build things, fix things. And he loves the people most of all. He really does. He talks to his patients. He asks them all kinds of information that often all the rest of us find tedious. What school did you go to? And what did your dad do? And who cares? Just fix the bone. But he takes interest. And he's that kind of a person that if a patient can't come to the office because they have no ride, he will drive to their house and pick them up and give them a ride to the office. And that says a lot about someone. I don't know any other doctor here that would do that. That is so rare. If a patient calls him, it doesn't matter what time, he'll always be kind and nice and give him an answer. He is not tired of being called or fed up. And he's worked many shifts and he was up many nights. So it's not like he's leisurely and he can answer the calls as they come. Now he has a leisurely lifestyle. But back then, he worked a lot. Herb was lucky to be able to spend so much of his time with family during his practice, but his family was lucky too. Here's his son, Jeffrey Mendelson. I never felt pressured to be a doctor. I just saw how much fun my dad was having. I admired him. I admired the way he conducted himself. You know, listen, I spent a good portion of my life trying to become my dad because I liked who he was and I, and I respected that. But he was never somebody who pushed me to be a doctor. You have to do what it is we do. It's an amazing legacy. It's an amazing legacy because he has three sons who are orthopedic surgeons and a daughter-in-law. And he has a daughter who's a physician as well. And we are all very lucky to be able to do what we do and to have had him lay a path for us to have a productive life. His kids knew medicine was the place for them. Herb's firstborn son, David Mendelssohn, might have been luckiest of all, spending the most time with Herbie doing what he loved best. I'm luckier than almost anybody in the world because I have more of my dad in me from the time I spent than anybody else. 
If you're listening to this and you knew my dad, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about. He pretty much is bigger than the myth. As long as he was physically able to, he wanted to be there if you were going to do surgery. It wasn't good or bad. It was all the interesting ones. It's because he had real joy in what we were doing. It wasn't an art of medicine. It wasn't a job. It was almost a calling. He wouldn't even question why are we taking care of patients. He didn't even have to think about it. It was his being. He did it with patients and he did it with anybody who crossed his path. You know, he would have us try to learn the brachial plexus and the Krebs cycle. So, you know, he would have us try to do that, and you would do it to impress him and because he said it was the thing to do. But what it really represented were some of the challenges that he encountered when he was going through his educational years. And he felt if you had learned some of this stuff, you could distinguish yourself, and you wouldn't have to learn things that were daunting in the future. And it's interesting, buried in the corner of a picture at some event at Luigi's is a picture of my dad sitting with Andrew. And on a placemat, there's the drawing of the brachial plexus as Andrew was starting to go through his medical training. So some things always remained. That was like the most memorable experience I had. We were at Luigi's and they had the paper tablecloths. And I had just got done with my first anatomy unit where we had done head and neck and we had gone over the brachial plexus. And he was so excited that I could draw the brachial plexus on the tablecloth. And I still have the tablecloth piece that I had drawn it on. I tucked it away up in my medical stuff. Yeah, I feel he definitely influenced me to be more curious about medicine in general. I think if there's anything that I picked up on from Time Zero with Zadie Herbie, it was that he just had a love and a curiosity for medicine. And I think that really resonated with the fact that I like medical research and I equally was as curious and loved it. So we were never short of good conversation. He was always fun to talk to, always had a genuine interest in my research and how medical school was going. Herbie thought medicine was the best profession in the world, and he often tried to pass down that calling to the children in his life, like close family friend Sandy Schwartz's nephews. And I told you about when he came to the door and that inspired Jason and Mark to be doctors. <laughs> when my sister Judy was in and I took care of her boys, her boys stayed with me when they went to Europe. So they went to Europe and I had the boys and I had a broken arm at the same time. So my parents were here too. And Herbie would come, and the phone rings, and I answer the phone, and the boys were like seven and nine. And I said, hello, and he says, it's Herbie, we're at the front door, open the front door. He had a phone, but the phone was in a box. That was the first portable phone, they were in a box. So the kids, the eyes, were this big. So Herbie says to them, you like this? This is the new phone, and you want one like this? You become a doctor. They both did. Jason is an internist, and Mark is in holistics. But Jason and Mark weren't the only two little ones influenced by Herb's magic medicine. This is Herb's brother-in-law, Edwin Acker. Herbie was the one who instilled in his children the desire to be a doctor. And he used to take them to wherever he was working, doing surgery or whatever. He would take David and Diane and Stephen and Jeffrey. He would make sure they all got imbued with being in the medical field, which they were, as you can see. All of them are. And he made that possible for them. He talked them into it. He made them love medicine. In fact, he convinced my oldest son to go into med school and help him get enrolled in the Des Moines School of Osteopathy. And he was very instrumental in helping Steve get into that school. 
and he got Diane and David and Jeffrey and, and all of his kids into med school. And to me, it was a great accomplishment to get his kids into med school, all of them, including my own oldest son. And speaking of his oldest, here's Steve Acker. I always start with, he used to come pick me up at the house when I was in high school. Like he would come on a Saturday morning and it was the only time I had a chance to sleep in and he would beep on the driveway and I would hear my mom yelling, Uncle Herbie's here, Herbie's here, get up, get up. And I would, what is he here for? He's taking you with him to the hospital. Oh shit, I want to sleep. You know, I want to sleep. He was persistent and I was like that teenager that didn't want to listen to other adults tell me what to do. I wanted my own storyline. But I have to say that it turned out to be just an amazing thing. So he would take me to little hospitals with him, or he'd take me to a meeting where I was totally out of my league, but just to expose me to what he was doing. And I really didn't have any clue what he was doing. It was just orthopedics is so great. You'll love it. It's the best thing ever. It's never dull. And in my head, I was saying, sure, sure, sure. And I would, in my head, push back a little bit because what could be so great? so great all the time as he would express it but it was it turned out to be so much fun traveling with him and and he was just always a ball of energy i never could keep up with how fast he used to walk down the halls of the hospitals and so saturday mornings were taken up with uncle herbie i feel so lucky that he was so willing to coach me and mentor me he was the guy he was the guy for me you know he wasn't my dad he wasn't my friend he was my uncle who was an orthopedic surgeon but there were times where it felt like he was like another strong adult figure for me. And he took me to my first orthopedic meeting. That was quite an experience also. I think I was in med school and I thought I knew some stuff, or maybe I was a first year resident. I thought I knew some stuff. And then he took me to this meeting that just blew me away how little I really knew. So it made me appreciate his thirst for knowledge. He was really, really humble. He was doing the job he loved. He obviously loved his family, but he was humble. And his great-nephew, Aaron Kirsch, also had a similar experience with weekend wake-ups to shadow Uncle Herbie. Aaron, too, became a doctor under Herb's influence and even modeled his medical practice based on what he saw on his trips to the office with Herbie. For a lot of us, Uncle Herbie is the reason that we became doctors. I think I'm part of a group of 'er ne'er-do-wells who he would come and drag along with him onto his rounds. My favorite thing to do when I was a kid on the weekends was to sleep into around noon, watch cartoons and wrestling, and eat and snack all day. But sometimes I would be dragged out of bed physically before noon by Uncle Herbie and taken to the hospital to go on rounds all day long and not get to watch my wrestling or cartoons. I think there are at least a handful of us who practice medicine today. That's how we got into it, is he would take us with him on rounds and show us how to be a doctor. Herb's passion for medicine was coupled with another of his favorite things, humor. Here's Herb's youngest, Steve Mendelson. Well, first of all, I continue to use my father's witticisms when I see patients and when I talk to other people. My father loved to say things like paralysis by analysis. He would ask patients, were you there when it happened? Do you feel more like you do now than you did then? I've taken variations of those as well. I do have an immense joy in seeing some of my senior patients who were taking care of dad and we get to sit down and reflect about him and the stories they tell me continue to broaden the picture and add dimensionality to my father, which is wonderful. Herb's jokes are remembered by many and his idea that humor held an important place in medicine was passed down to the kids he dragged out of bed on a weekend around. That was something that 
thing that most of all stood out to me. And so when I'm working with patients, I'm myself. And so my jokes are different from his jokes, but I, I still try to bring my personality and my concern and any kind of humor I have to the patients. And it's the same in the hospital and out. And that's how he was. He wasn't putting on a show. He was being himself. But he knew that humor helps alleviate a lot of stress. It helps keep the patients comfortable. And so I'm not fixing broken bones, but when I'm with a patient doing something that might be painful or stressful or maybe kind of scary for them, telling a joke, make them laugh really does help a lot. Even Herb's first cousin, Harold Margolis, took a page out of Herbie's book, taking his own daughter to see patients in the hopes of her becoming a doctor, too. In my Jewish family, to be a doctor was very, very good. Whether I was being brainwashed by him or being brainwashed by my parents to go there, I don't remember. But I'm not the only one that went there. I think, if I remember correctly, some of Herbie's kids only went there also, being brainwashed to become doctors. At that age of my life, I was going to school. What if I do? I don't know. I'll go once you get cousin Herbie and go over to call me up, sure, come on over. So I went maybe three, four, five times. Likewise, I took my daughter with me, copying Herbie, and I couldn't get her. I got my two sons to become doctors. But just like Harold, Herbie couldn't quite catch everyone and turn them into physicians with his passion and wit alone. Still, the kids Herbie couldn't drag to the office somehow always ended up there anyway. Here's niece Sharon Kirsch and her daughter, Annie Engler. It is the heart of gold is 20 years ago. My daughter, who is 32 years old, went to Norwich Middle School and was hit by a car by a 20-year-old. My Uncle Herbie was at St. Mary's, and the principal at the middle school says, Sharon, you got to take her to Beaumont. I said, Steve, when you go to medical school, you can tell me what hospital my daughter can go to. My uncle is out of Providence. My uncle was in surgery, stopped, literally stopped what he was doing, met me at Providence with a bedpan. He put her together. Her bones had popped through her skin. She was lucky she was alive. My uncle stopped everything and met me to put her together, cut a hole in the cast. Him and my cousins every single day for eight weeks came to check so she didn't have a bone infection. He's always looking out for me and I can always thank him. And my mom tells me this for not having to have any surgery or any pins or anything put into my leg since he handled the case himself. And now close family friend Jeffrey Schwartz. My first memories of Herbie's passion for his work were my trips to the office. I was pretty active and athletic kid and managed to get hurt often enough to make many trips to the office. And when you went to the office, it was pretty obvious that he loved his work. And one of Herbie's things was since he always tried to convince younger people that came to the office that they should be a doctor and maybe even more specifically an orthopedic surgeon. And that was where you saw that he really was connected to everybody and how he treated his patients. But unfortunately for Herbie, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And I'm probably the classic definition of a Jewish lawyer, a Jewish boy that can't stand the sight of blood. But he kept trying and he kept bringing me along. And that was another interesting thing because Herbie will tell you himself, he has no great love of lawyers, but he made an exception for me. Mostly, I think, because I was a prosecutor and then a criminal defense attorney and made a vow that I'd never sue a doctor. So he gave me a pass there other than being very close and convincing about it. Though Herbie couldn't mold every young mind into being a doctor, his daughter, Diane Levine's love for him and his passion for the craft did help medical students he didn't even know personally. So some time ago at the School of Medicine, they said we need to help students financially who can't afford medical school. And I talked with my dad and we started a scholarship in his honor. And it was the Herb Mendelssohn Enthusiasm for Medicine and wrote up a beautiful paragraph about my dad 
He worked with DeCaul. He loved DeCaul and about his passion for medicine and how everyone should feel better after talking to the doctor and how he role modeled that for all of us. And we gave it out, and now we give out uh, 10000 a year, 5000 to each student. And he delighted in that. He really did. When they had their 50th wedding anniversary, people gave gifts to the scholarship. This year, we once again had our large celebration at Match Day, and I gave out his award this year. But this year, it was not in his honor, but it was a memorial scholarship. And we gave it out to two students. And although they never met my father and talked about him so much, They felt they had. And through that scholarship and through everything that I talk about him, his good deeds, his passion, his enthusiasm, his wildness, his stories, they live on. You might think that all that work left no time for play, but that wasn't Herbie's way. Herb had a keen wonderlust and deep curiosity that he actively pursued in between long stints of seeing patients and operating daily. Throughout the years, he found himself on many trips with close friends and family, such as longtime family friends Mary Jo and Jerry Heft. We have known Herbie and Phyllis for many years. I would say at least 30, wouldn't you? 30 plus years. 30 plus. They have been our best friends for many years. We've traveled together. We visit all the time. There's really not a day that goes by that we don't speak to them and make sure that everything is all right and that they're doing well and that we're all happy. And we've had a lot of wonderful trips that we've taken together. Many trips. To Israel three times. To Hawaii. Alaska, California, Louisiana, let's see where else, Italy, Italy, that was, yes, that was was great. We had a lot of wonderful times. The Duomo was quite a challenge for all of us. Herbie made it all the way up. He was the only one out of the four of us. Herbie and his wife Phyllis traveled everywhere with friends and family throughout their children's growing up. I mean, there's the fun stories, like when he ate the display lobster on one vacation. And there's the classic story that involved a trip to the Bahamas. We took a vacation in the mid-70s to the Bahamas with Sandy and Harvey Schwartz and Jeffrey and Linda Schwartz. And it was a disaster in terms of they were supposed to pick us up at the airport. They were supposed to have a welcome reception, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we weren't particularly sophisticated. We didn't understand a lot of things, but nobody knew anything there. The whole town was asleep. One of the things they were supposed to have was a welcome reception. And so we check into the hotel, and my dad sort of disappears. And later, we're at dinner, and my dad is plowing through the bread. He goes through the bread basket and then orders another one, goes through that, and he goes through a third one. And we didn't know what was going on. Well, it turns out, in order to get his welcome reception, he ran from the desk at the hotel to the ballroom, to which there was a giant silver punch bowl filled with a pink liquid and a ladle and punch glasses there. So he went and took a glass and just guzzled it down. And it was in him when he realized it wasn't punch, but it was soap. His big fear was that there was lye in this. And then he would get bad burns in his throat, and he didn't know what to do. So he figured if he ate the bread, that would absorb it, so it would diminish the the contact. And we always joke, like, the next day in the bathroom, it was like Lawrence Welk with all the bubbles. (laughs) But David didn't know even more happened on that trip. I mean, we would go to a hotel, and there was... There was a guy outside, and he started up with your father, and he actually was somebody that was representing women, and he was trying to get your father 
to hook up with somebody. And it was absolutely <laughs> hysterical. It was just hysterical. And the guy was dressed, he was really dressed like, what would you call it? A pimp. Yeah, he was. He had a hat on and he was with a long keychain. And the whole picture that you would know what he was just looking at him. He said, well, I, I just couldn't do what I'm with my wife, you know. So it was, it was funny. And it was just totally hysterical. But the story gets even better when Herbie decided he could have a little more fun with Sandy's son, Jeffrey. We did have some family trips together. We went to Florida together that I remember one. We went on a few, but Florida was one. But the one that stuck with me the most is when I was 18 and her families went to the Bahamas and we stayed at the Princess Hotel, which was one of the new fancy ones at the time. And they had a casino and they had grounds. So I'm walking back late at night, or it may not have been that late at night, but I'm walking back and I see Herbie with this kind of youngish Bahamian, and he's showing Herbie this book. And Herbie starts like cracking up. He looks at me and he has this devilish grin and that glint in his eye that he gets. And he starts pointing to the guy and apparently tells him to go in my direction. So the guy comes over to me and he brings this book and all of a sudden he opens up the book and I see that he's showing me pictures of naked women who are apparently prostitutes and wants to see which one I want. And Herbie is like almost in tears. He's laughing so hard. So for an 18 year old, that was a pretty amusing event that you're not going to forget that early. And then my parents, Harvey and Sandy and Phyllis and Herbie went on quite a few trips together. And one of those stories that Herbie loves to tell is they used to go to Stratford, Ontario quite a bit, where they had the Shakespeare's festivals, and they had all kinds of plays, and they liked to go for the weekend and go to plays. So apparently there was this long line to get in, and my dad, Harvey, had indicated that he had to go to the bathroom. And the bathroom apparently was down this hill, down some steps, and quite far away. So they're inching up toward the beginning of the line. And I guess this is the story that you could think would rival I Love Lucy with Desi and Lucy and Fred and Ethel, because all of a sudden they're next to be called. And my dad's not quite back yet from the bathroom. So a group of people goes ahead of him. And that group turns out to be some distinctive hallmark number. And they get Herbie, I think, exaggerates a little bit. And he said they got to go to plays for life. I'm probably sure it's not life, but. I'm pretty sure that they missed out on a big prize because my dad was late to the bathroom. Herbie never let my dad forget about that, but in a kidding way. Another time when we were leaving Hawaii, it was hysterical because your dad was driving. He insisted on he wanted to drive. So he was driving. We had rented a car and we had to get the car back at the airport. Apparently, they went to rent a car, and the only thing that was available, at least for the first day or so that they were there, was this open-air Jeep that was only a stick shift. And none of them drove a stick shift in years, but you know they ended up managing, and they had to stop for gas, and they tried to get directions to the hotel. So we pull up at this gas station, and your dad asks directions to this guy, and he says, oh... You go here, you go there. He gives us a whole description of where to go. And so we leave. So 45 minutes later, they don't know where they're at. And they end up back at the same gas station. And we're at the same guy, the exact same guy. (laughs) We could figure out what the hell we did. The same guy is there with the lunch bag and says, what are you doing back here? 
And it was just hysterical. We we went in a loop or whatever. So he says, I don't believe this. Aren't you the people I just talked to? I said, well, tell us again. (laughs) Finally, we got out of there. But it was ridiculous how we were going in circles and didn't realize until we bumped into the same guy. So they kind of love to tell that one as well. You know Herbie, he loves to tell uh, certain true stories that he thinks are funnier than any actual jokes because they're true. Herbie found himself on some trips many people would never expect to go on. The day after our wedding, I never saw David again for several weeks because some guy fell off of a building and broke every part of him. So we decided to take our honeymoon a month after we got married, and we still had no idea what we wanted to do on our honeymoon. And one day I was driving on the freeway, and my cell phone rang, and David says, hey, what do you think about going to Hong Kong for our honeymoon? And I said, oh my God, that sounds really cool. When am I ever going to go there again? Yeah, because there's just one thing. We have to go with my parents. That's Lauren Mendelson, David's wife and Herbie's daughter-in-law. My dad and my mom, as well as Mary Jo and Jerry, came on one other trip with us, and that was my honeymoon. And I said to him, David, you barely have mentally moved away from your parents. Seriously, we really have to go with your parents on our honeymoon? I mean, we're always with your parents. It's nice to have an instant source of advice available. (laughs) And I said, all right, you know what? I'll do it. As long as we can have another week added on to that, we'll go somewhere alone and we'll have our own honeymoon. And he said, okay, great. He says, because my parents actually are planning a trip to go with the owners of the Peking House and the Hefts and the travel agent and her husband, who I actually knew her. And we'll go along with them and it'll be fun. You'll see. I said, okay, fine. So the following month, we went with them to Hong Kong and we spent a week with them. And I'm going to tell you, I had the best time of my life. It was so much fun. And I remember saying, they're not like anyone's parents. I started to realize they're really not like someone's parents. They don't act with the same authority. And we all blended in together as if we were all the same age and nothing has ever changed. Honestly, they became friends more than anything. We had so much fun. We did everything together. And I have absolutely no regrets of that. Nothing but fond memories. And at the end of the week, we did split up. They went off to Hawaii and David and I went to Thailand, which was another amazing trip. But yeah, so we spent a solid week in a foreign country with them and it was wonderful. I have just the best memories of that trip. And I actually really got to know them a lot better then. And the Hefts, who are like family from that day on. It's been wonderful. What can I say? So yeah, very different. As you can tell, Herbie loved to travel with his kids and his kids and their families loved to travel with him. We were fortunate. We got to do a lot of traveling with them because they have so many grandchildren. Sometimes it's hard to have those more intimate moments. That was Ann Mendelson, Jeffrey's wife and Herbie's daughter-in-law. I love to travel. Jeffrey's very open to it. And we did an annual cruise with them for 12 years to the Caribbean. I think they went all 12 times. There might have been a year or two that they missed. We also did two European cruises, which were great. We started taking this yearly trip on the Disney cruise. The kids had their midwinter break, I think is what they called it, and it was one week. I think the first two years, we just had so much fun going on this ship. I'd never been on a cruise ship before. I'd heard many people tell me what a nice experience it is. And having seen that, I thought to myself, this is a great intergenerational experience. And then I was being selfish. I knew when I grabbed them, I would have them and my kids would have them to themselves for seven or eight uninterrupted days. And I loved it. I always got a big kick out of doting on my parents. It was so much fun for me. So my dad would come to breakfast. 
He would time it just to get there, just like with 12 minutes left in the breakfast. My job was to have an omelet ready to be placed on the table at exactly the moment he arrived. He would get such a kick out of that, and so would I. We went to the Southern Mediterranean, and then one year we went to Northern Europe. And my daughter was at the time, and she still is, very interested in the Titanic. She is, I guess you would say, a Titanic fanatic. And he was very supportive of this to the point where they had just opened a museum in Belfast, Northern Ireland, about the Titanic. And I was able to work it out that we could go ahead of the cruise with my parents, with our in-laws and all of us. And we went there. And he really was very indulgent and he very much supportive of our daughter and her passion for all the statistics. And I think he tried to encourage a pursuit of knowledge and was always grateful for that because someone else could have also been like, why are you schlepping me here again? Let's get on with it. But he was just, he was terrific about it. I had a lot of intimacy with my parents and our kids did as well. We live in a neighborhood where a lot of us are located and that's terrific. But sometimes what it does is there's always a crowd. And in this way, I was able to eliminate the crowd and really get my parents to myself and get my dad to myself. I could sit with my dad for hours on those ships and just shoot the bull and talk and also see him in a very calm environment, which I loved. Herbie loved seeing the world, whether by ship or by car, and he always made it interesting. Here's Herbie's brother-in-law, Edwin Acker. One thing we always did together, we always went on vacations together, and we would take their car and my car. I had a van, he had a van. Herbie would set up the telephone in the cars so the two girls could talk to each other when we were going wherever we were going. And one year we went down to the caves in Kentucky. We drove down there together and the girls talked to each other all the time. They were inseparable. And Herbie and I just kind of went along with the girls wherever they wanted to do. And we went down to the caves down there and they took their four kids and our four kids. And one year we went down to the caves. One year we went to Boston. Herbie had a cell phone, one of the early cell phones. And the company who made them was located in Boston. And so we went on a vacation to Boston, the two cars and all the kids. And we drove there and he went in and took care of his cell phone. And then we drove up to the Cape and spent time up up on the Cape for a week. When Herbie found himself set to go on another trip, he always liked to prepare. Even on the trips, before going on any trip, he was a voracious reader. And before we went to Alaska, he read Michener's Alaska. It was 1,200 pages. He read it in a short period of time. He told me he read Michener's Hawaii before going to Hawaii. No matter what trip, how far or how close, no matter what hiccups they had along the way, everyone always said the same thing. It was a great trip because the four of us were together and that's all that mattered. You may have noticed that throughout all of Herbie's experiences, there's a through line of mechanics and technology. Herbie loved gadgets and gizmos, and not necessarily the newest and hottest thing. Still, he had a lot of fun sharing that love with everyone else. I will tell you this. What he loved early on, he loved various... The term today would be technology, but he had one of the first pagers that existed in the early 60s. He used to tell a story about seeing the movie Goldfinger and having a pager that went off in the theater, which was completely unknown to everybody there. He said the people 
thought he was a plant from the movie. He had absolutely, amongst the very first two-way radio telephones in the mid-60s, he used to tell a story about having to go to Boston, to Bell and Howell, in order to get this specific walkie-talkie that only the Secret Service had had, and he had to go into a building where they would go down into the basement and under the street into another building. And he said they were working on problems like a bug they had planted in an embassy that was painted over and they couldn't turn it off. He loved that stuff. He had the first cell phone, the Walker Technophone. He had that. He had the brick. So he loved that stuff. And listen, he was an early adopter of the iPhone. He loved the iPhone. And considering the age he started into this, he was a natural with it. The computers, look, at he was feeding information in the computers until the end. It was really important to him. And he always wanted to learn more. He had an open, curious mind, and he was sharp. He really was. I mean, he was always on the cutting edge. I've been going through all of his stuff in the office and in the garage, and man, he likes screwdrivers. There are 200 screwdrivers. And when he was young, he told me he was always trying to make his father's business successful and presentable, and he was always organizing and cleaning. He wasn't exactly a hoarder, but he didn't give anything away. But the basement was totally organized. I'm not sure that he needed every single kind of fitting and screw and other implement, but they were all in containers and labeled. And now, great niece Alexandra Kirsch-Thompson. Mechanical, when talking about Herbie Mendelssohn, actually describes everything he did. I think he was a mechanic at heart. He loved to work with cars, and if he wasn't working on a body, he was working on a car. That's the way I know how to describe him. He was very mechanically oriented, and he was pretty good at that. The mechanics of family, the mechanics of language, of words. He was obsessed with words and defining words and understanding if other people knew the definitions and quizzing them on the spelling and application of those words. I remember that he not only never bought new cars, his cars were always, dare I say, sort of jalopy-esque. I was always breathing a sigh of relief when we landed at our point B after leaving point A. He was obsessed with fixing everything, including I remember when they had a bone density scanner at their office, they needed a printer to print out the results. He refused to buy a new one. He brought one that was, I dare to say, at least a decade old that he was convinced could be retrofitted and refurbished to work for that machine. The best was that we went into a restricted area with Uncle Herbie, but it was all education with him. I remember watching him get his first ever electronic dictation device to do his charting. And it was so weird to me at the time. And I kept thinking, this is never going to take off as a technology dictating into a thing that transcribes it. That's not going to happen. Alexandra, like many of us, enjoys technology, but not like Herbie. It has never stopped entertaining me that my uncle, well into even his 80s, was ahead of technology when I work in this space, that I should be the person who wants the latest iPhone or the Apple Watch. But no, my uncle was actually the person who, as much as he would refurbish things, needed to be on that cutting edge because it influenced so much of his life. And I think, again, everything around him was all about mechanics, bringing it full circle. I mean, it really was all about mechanics. He made things work. Even from day one of his family's life, he was always there with a camera in hand and the desire to be there for his people. When I had my first daughter, Cecilia, or as we call her, Cece, named after my Bubby and his sister, Cyril Lois Mendelson Cooper. So my daughter, Cecilia Ruth, was breached at birth, which means that the baby's feet were down instead of her head being down in the pregnancy, which can cause a lot of issues with babies and their hips. 
So you do an ultrasound when they're a few months old to make sure there's no issues. When my uncle, the orthopedic, for years, heard about this about a week after she was born, he came over when we had a home health care nurse over for something else not related to the hip. He walked right into our front door, straight up to the nurse, interrupting what she was doing, and started to check Cece's hip for any clicking noises. The nurse was startled by the fact that someone would just walk right into our house and took charge. And we were just laughing because this is not surprising to us. Afterwards, he stayed for a while documenting via his iPhone on video his great niece, Cecilia Ruth, and what the nurse was doing. Needless to say, the nurse wasn't too happy with him filming and narrating whatever she was doing, but there was no stopping my Uncle Herbie. When I look at my daughter Cece's eyes, which are blue and big, just like Uncle Herbie's, I always think of him. Herbie's lust for life couldn't be contained to the operating room and a thirst for knowledge and experience. Throughout his life, Herbie was an inspiration and role model for his deep kindness and generosity outside of others' expectations. Typically, when you think of generosity, you think of donating money, this, there, or the other. But he was charitable in a different way. He was very generous in giving people the benefit of the doubt and a second chance. All his energy and efforts were medicine and orthopedic-based. As I said earlier, it was a calling. He was deeply loyal to taking care of patients and helping them out. But he also was deeply loyal to the members of his family who really had problems and needed help. That was where he felt he could make a difference or where he can contribute. And he loved that. It was never a chore for him. He was pure and tireless. He never got exhausted or tired, ever. He loved doing those sorts of things. He knew he was privileged. He knew that he had money, and he used his money not to buy things for himself, although he did buy a lot of gadgets. He bought a lot of gadgets. He liked gadgets. Cool ways to charge things, lots of flashlights. Many cases, always looking for the perfect case to hold his stuff. That's what he spent his money on, a a schlep bag or a new flashlight. But what he spent his real money on were the people he loved, a house for somebody, a house for somebody else, helping somebody financially who needed a loan, or giving them money and never asking for the loan back. He was a generous man, but he did not seek attention in his generosity. He was really wonderful that way. I think a big thing about Uncle Herbie is, so everyone's talking about how he's such a great doctor, a great dad, great uncle, but he was also a great brother. So Uncle Herbie had three siblings. I have three siblings. He had brother, Uncle Saul, and my grandmother, Cyril, his his oldest sister, and Auntie Molly. So he's one of four. And he was a really excellent brother. My uncle always wanted to make nice, to do good for my mother, to give her things that you would probably take for granted. Like just when she didn't have a dishwasher, that they went and got her a dishwasher. I mean, just when I lived in Oak Park. Little things that you might take for granted. So we're talking right now, you and I in this house. So go back to March 9th, 2000, and we're gathered at my mom's house next door, having some dessert. We have myself, I'm there, my sisters are there, Amanda, Andy, and Alexandra, my dad, and my grandparents, Sam and Cyril. It was Cyril's birthday, and we're just chilling around the house having some dessert, and Uncle Herbie walks into the house. And it's always a big, he makes a big scene, and he's, you know, talking and laughing, joking around, and he gives Bubby Cyril a card. He goes, open the card, so she opens up the card. And it says, happy birthday, Cyril. You know, and there's a little drawing of it in the inside of the card of a house. 
and taped on the house is a key. And on the house, there's a little drawing of the address of this house we're talking in right now. And my grandma looks around kind of confused and says, I don't understand. What is this? What does this mean? And he says, so this is your new house. And she still is kind of shocked and disbelief. And she goes, what do you mean? He goes, I bought you the house next door. That's your new house. And all of a sudden she started to cry. She was screaming and crying and such disbelief. My grandfather's walking around in circles, so confused. But ultimately they understood that he bought them the house next to their daughter where they moved and lived the rest of their lives. And then the next year when I was 15, they brought me over here to, to move here on my own with them. And we had such a uh, wonderful, amazing time, all because Uncle Herbie, to him, it was no big deal just to buy a house for his sister before it hits the market. And he was so happy because everyone's looking at her, look at his face. He was so happy to make her happy. He said, here, I have a birthday card for you. And she couldn't believe it. She just couldn't believe it. She says, I can't believe this. Something she never thought in her whole lifetime, what happened to her? But that's not the only house Herbie arranged for someone to stay in. When Stevie and Alice were considering getting married, he extended his generous hand once again. Here's another thing that completely floored me because I was not expecting it. I grew up in a pretty decent family in Israel. We were not rich. We were not poor. Like we were okay, but we didn't have excess money. And when I was 18, I went to the army. And after that, I never really lived with my parents anymore. I was pretty independent. I moved to Jerusalem. I went to medical school and I was living there in the dorms. So really, I never went back home after I was 18. And when I considered coming here to join Steve, the first idea was to come and test it out for a year before we'd commit to this whole marriage thing. Finally, when he convinced me to do that, I said, okay, I'll do that. I'll put my job on hold. I'll give up my rented apartment, put my stuff in storage, and I'm coming for a year, but I need to know where I'm going to live. So Steve said to me, oh, live with my parents. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. I have not lived with my parents since I was 18. I'm not going to live with your parents. I'm the girlfriend. How can you even think about this? And we were almost 30. I'm like, you could bring me home to live with your parents? It's ridiculous. So I said, fine, we'll rent something. So I said, okay. And I was hoping he's in the process of looking for something to rent. And then a month or two go by and Steve says, we have a house. I'm like, what do you mean we have a house? We're not married. I don't even know if I want to marry you. How can we have a house? He said, my dad decided instead of renting, he's going to put down the down payment on the little house next to them. And we'll just pay the mortgage instead of paying rent. It'll be the same kind of thing. And that really shocked me. I understood I wasn't married to him or anything, and there was no financial commitment. So at any point, he could, of course, sell the house. It was on his name. So it's not like he gifted me a house. But still, the idea that, oh, he'll just put the down payment down and whatever. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, like, I was completely shocked. It was a big surprise to me. So that's where we moved into. We had a little bungalow. It wasn't as little as I say. It was about 1,600 square feet. It was really cute. And we fixed it up with all kinds of hand-me-down furnitures from the family. And that's how it started. I was pretty sure at that point that I can get married to the family. I wasn't sure about Stevie, but the family, I was sure that was (laughs) the family was good. Herbie loved doing for family. So when he was asked to help family in big ways and small, he was there for the people he loved. The one thing I will say about him was how deeply loyal he was to his family, no matter what. That's Herbie's great nephew and University of Michigan regent, Jordan Acker. That's the thing that I always remember about him. You know, when I ran for office, he was probably the fourth or fifth person I called. And he said to me, well, you know, I'm happy to write you a check. And he said, tell me, 
how much did Stevie write you for? And I told him how much, you know, you can go look up how much it was. I honestly don't remember. And he said, well, Stevie's more successful than I am. So how about this amount? That's a bit less than that, but you know, it comes with more love. And it's like, it does, it does. For him, the pride of being able to do that, you know, and to do that for his family without thinking twice about it is really what made him a special man. And, you know, that's, you know, something that is a goal for all of us to strive to because it doesn't always work that way. We always get to a point with some family where we say, tough luck, you're out on your own. He would never say that. Even frankly, when some family members deserved it, it was never his way. And that's part of what made him such a special person. It was a loyalty that was really, you don't see much of anymore. Anyone who knew him knew Herbie went above and beyond for the people he loved. He gave his money, his attention, and his time, and he enjoyed doing it. Memory I have from before I came to the United States of Herb was there was a chance that I had to escort a patient to Kentucky. A patient that was in Israel broke her hip, but she was from Kentucky, and she needed a medical escort back to Kentucky after we did surgery in the orthopedic department. They chose me to be the resident to take her back to Kentucky because they knew that Steve was here and I wanted to get together with him when I could. Steve was going to a big meeting, a conference in New Orleans, the American Orthopedic Academy. So I had to find a ticket to take me from Kentucky to New Orleans. And back then, I wasn't as internet savvy. I don't know how many people were. But I remember that I called and Steve got his dad on it because Steve was working somewhere in a rotation. And his dad was on the phone with me on the one line and with Delta on the other line. And he was trying to finagle arrangements and make connections. And he spent a lot of time on the phone with both of us doing that. And I'm like, wow, that was very impressive for me. I don't think my dad would have been able to do that or maybe wanting to do that for someone that he doesn't know as well. And I think that speaks volumes to Herb's personality. He was always kind. He was always generous and happy to help someone. And since he knew that I couldn't figure out a flight from Israel, how to get from Kentucky to New Orleans and who to call and what numbers to talk to, then he was happy to do it for me, even though it took up a good hour of his time at least. That was a little bit of a window that, wow, this person is really nice and really willing to go the extra mile for someone. He's really generous. That is just him. And once Alice and Stevie did get married, Herbie continued to offer his support in generous ways. We actually had a second wedding in Israel in May that was the formal wedding to which all of Steve's family from here came to Israel. And I think back then Herb paid for a lot of people's tickets, a lot of people that couldn't afford to come, like his sister and I think a cousin, friends. They had good friends that didn't have money to come. He paid for their tickets and their hotel rooms because they had no money for that at all. So I guess Herb is definitely a doer. He's a very generous man and he liked to do that kind of stuff. He didn't live big. Herb never lived big. He didn't drive a luxurious car or wear fancy clothes or buy fancy stuff. But in things that mattered, he could give the money and he was happy to do it. When someone needed tuition for medical school, like Steve's cousin, then Herb was happy to pay for it. Anything like that that had to come up, Herb was always generous. But he wasn't a big spender on himself or on his wife or things like that. He was totally generous. He was generous with his time and with his work. He would help people move stuff, build stuff, do stuff. He was generous with his concern. He was prudent in his advice. Unlike me that tries to solve everybody's problems, he was more prudent in his advice. He was really there for his inner circle, but his inner circle extended quite a bit. 
He helped people financially. He helped people with their homes. He just was wonderful. He really was. Close family and friends, he was there for them and made sure that if he could, he made their lives better. no one whose life he'd rather make better than that of his loving wife, Phyllis Mendelssohn. To many, their relationship was that of a love story. I have to say they're very solid. Over all these years, again, 30 years that I've known them, I really have never seen anything but a partnership. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes. Everyone has whatever they have that goes on behind the scenes. But they've always been very welcoming, very open. They love to entertain. They always had every holiday there with billions and billions of people in their house. But when they were together, I don't think I've ever seen anything but just a partnership. And I have no memory whatsoever of them never getting along. I couldn't tell you that I've ever seen that. I've only seen probably what's started when they were five years old and has lasted to this day. And I still see the same thing. I've only seen just two people that are in love and it's a perfect role model for anybody that wants to be married for a long time. I grew to really think that out of everybody we know, Jeffrey and I have spoken about it, that they are, along with my parents, Phyllis and Herbie, are the happiest married people that we know, which is really a testament to be able to say that. I thought they had, in a way, a very modern marriage. Like, they each did their own thing, and they came together. For two traditional people, they acted in a very modern way. She's an interior designer. He had the orthopedic practice, and although they were very connected, and had family things together. They ran and they both worked very hard. And I admired that. Anyone could see that through good times and bad, Phyllis and Herbie were made for each other. As a couple, they were very attached to each other. They had the children and they had their trials and tribulations with losing the babies, Richard, early, early on when they, when they lived in, in the old park. But even with that, from the beginning, their love was unmatched. Esther Hartman, Herbie's beloved sister and a member of the Daily Phone Call Club, shared that as a teenager newly in love, Herbie would go after working in the store until midnight to Phyllis's parents' house. They would feed him and make him comfortable, and he wanted to spend all of his time there with Phyllis and her family. Esther said that when the phone was working, Herbie would call Phyllis and have Esther stay on the phone and try to keep her on while he counted the steps to Phyllis's apartment, sharing that he would get there and laugh getting such a kick out of the fact that he could walk to Phyllis's place all while keeping the two girls on the phone. Back then, and every moment after that, Phyllis was always happy to see him, and he never had eyes for anyone else after he met her. But while Herb's love for Phyllis was like an old tale, he was something of a legend all on his own. My father was a man of his time. He was a great man placed at the right time in history so that his skills and his abilities were there to be the hero of the day. I don't think he stood for just one thing. You know, he was an underdog in many regards. He was spiritual a bit without being a deep believer. I think he was a mixture of an idealist and a pragmatist. If I boiled Herb down to one thing was, my father was a force of nature, and that force was fun and good. It brought the rain for the crops and the puddles to play in. Sometimes it knocked down a few of the trees. 
a couple of those trees needed to be knocked down, but a few of them, <laughs> why did you have to knock it down there? And everyone would always come out to look at that rain and to expect that rain, and it was reliable, and it was a harbinger of good things to come. I always say that when God created Herbie, they threw out the mold, which is pretty much a cliche you could say about anybody, but it certainly is true with Herbie. If I was to describe Herbie to someone else, again, I would say that he was really a real character, a lot of fun, but that he was a very hard worker, had a great work ethic, was passionate about his work, was devoted to his family, would help anyone who asked for help. But I'm sure you've heard stories about many people who came to Herbie for help and that he never turns them down. And he's just a real good-hearted soul and a real mensch. And truly, he, other than my dad, who was my role model and I admired the most, Herbie's right up there. He's probably the second most admired person I have in my life and had that kind of impact on me. He's a real people person. He loves to connect with people. He believes in giving people second chances. He doesn't judge. You rarely hear him say a bad word about anyone. So if he does, you're probably not a good person. But those are the attributes that I would point to in terms of describing Herbie. He's just a real character. It's just a lot of fun. He had probably the biggest heart of anyone that I have met. His generosity is endless. His spirit is endless. I don't think I've ever seen him in a bad mood. He sees the good in everything. He really is a good example of how just to have the best day ever, no matter what you're handed. And even through all his own surgeries that he's had and whatever, he's never complained. I've never once seen him complain. In fact, I even loaned him a book of mine. It was a story about Henry Ford. It's called Never complain, never explain. He borrowed it from me. And inside he had stuffed all these articles that he'd taken out of the newspaper about things that he thought I'd be interested, like the Ford versus Ferrari movie and a bunch of things, because I'm involved in the car world. And just being thoughtful like that, he does that a lot. He's like my own dad. He used to tear out articles. It was something about the newspaper, an actual article to hand you the paper that it was on so you could read it because he thought you'd like it. He's just completely generous. He is totally wacky. I'm not going to lie. He's totally quirky. Yes, all those things are true. But if you look at the real message that's coming out of that, there's always something good behind it. There's always a positive, lovely, heartwarming message behind it. And it's always, what can I do for you? It's never, what can I take from you? There's always in his mind, he's looking to, oh, okay, what can I give you? What can I do about this? What can I give you of mine? I give you my car. I'll give you my shirt. I look at him as someone who's definitely leaving his mark and his legacy behind. A hundred percent he's left an impression on anyone that he's met. He never dwelled on the negative. He could get upset about a few little things, but mostly he was upbeat and he really enjoyed what he did. He never really knew if he had a bad day. He didn't show it. It was great. It's just great. Always good. He's a special man. He was about what he did in the practice. I'm sure he lived comfortably, but never ostentatiously, never in a gauche manner. And he was truly about grit and hardworking, never being a victim. I would come over and I'd complain about something happening at my house. And he would say, so you're going to be a victim about this? And I, in the moment, I probably was thinking, wow, how insensitive are you? And then looking back on it, I appreciate that. I appreciate being conditioned from all sides, but really even from this person who I always saw as a guiding post to be a survivor, to push through, to not ignore your adversity, whatever it might be, but to not let it be your barrier because you are destined for great things. 
He was not a shy person. His personality was such you couldn't help but like him. He was the kind of guy that when he walked in, he had a smile on his face. And he always had a joke to tell somebody, you know, Mm. even as years go by, he was always very congenial and people just loved him. He was really a person who loved his family and his kids. And he went out of his way to make sure that they were all happy and contented and were successful. From the get-go, I thought he was very warm and friendly. He made me feel comfortable right away. He was all about family and orthopedics. From the second I met him until today, that has not changed. Those are his twin loves of his life. And he's always stayed true to that. He has interests in other things, but it always comes back to that. And he was a lot of fun. He has a twinkle in his eye. And I thought he was a character and also a very solid person, someone who would come through for people. And on the way home, my nephew Carl was in the car. And I remember, I think he was a young teenager, maybe not even a teenager, like a 10, 11 year old. I remember thinking that it was very nice that he would want to join his grandfather on a car ride to go pick up his uncle. And I liked him right away. He was a loving man. He was devoted to his family. He wanted to do everything he could to protect them and make their lives better, keep the bad away, celebrate the good. He thought medicine, the pursuit of medicine was a wonderful thing and to be close as a family. He just wanted to be inclusive and as somebody who had a twinkle in his eye and was always glad to see you when you walked in that door. I'm even a little more in awe of him now because I think of all the things he had accomplished. And so it's a true time of reflection and that's kind of what's been going on. I will always be amazed at how much my father accomplished with all the obstacles he had to overcome. He was not fortunate enough to have nearly the support that I've had or that any of his kids had. And when I look what he accomplished, what he achieved, his general upbeat and enthusiastic attitude, I remain so very impressed by it. He was always up for something new and sometimes even something a little naughty or just he enjoyed life and he enjoyed the experiences. And so when you think about that, you can remember all the good things and the fun and all that. And that's mostly what I think about lately. I reflect on a lot of the things he had said to us, said to me, his advice, which was mostly a lived advice. I think about how a man lived his life and what he left behind. You think of somebody who had not only the will to succeed, but also he was a fun man to be around. He was a lot of fun. He was enjoyable. He was curious. He was playful. And I've reflected on that a lot since he's passed. I want them to know with the term mensch and to look it up. And if you could be half the person to be a mensch, to be a mensch, to not worry whether someone has money. Uncle Harvey doesn't think anyone is better than anybody else. He doesn't care. My uncle has, believe me, he has more money, can do whatever he wants. He's cheap. And his kids, they weren't raised material at all. They weren't. They have their things, which is fine. Everyone spends their money. To realize what it is to be a mensch, that you have to give back. Family is what life's about. That all you have is your family. You have siblings. You can pick your friends. You can't pick your family. Are you going to be close? But try to be close because that's what you got. You have a bond. That's all you have. He loved to read, 
One of the most amazing things about him that I wish I was more like him in this way is that he just learned something new every day. He loved learning. His mind was active and he just delighted in learning new things. He was a voracious reader, initially books and newspapers, but later when he discovered the internet, he loved to read about new things. And a, a month or two before he got sick, he pulled me into his office, and what he had done is he had cut out all of these newspaper articles and stories about new developments and new discoveries. And then what he did is he went to the internet to see if they had panned out, because he just wondered these things that were going to change the world, you know, what happened to them? So he searched them out and pulled me in and showed them to me. And again, he was having fun. He had fun learning. He had fun living. He had fun loving. Here's granddaughter Faye Mendelson. Everybody's stories fit along the same thing. The number one, Zadie made them feel like they were family, no matter what. Number two, he always kept article clippings that he could bring from magazines or newspapers that were relevant to like one either really passionate or really obscure topic of interest that you've mentioned before. And three, everybody could feel his passion of just being a good person for the sake of making the world a better place. That and he told a lot of jokes and he ate the food off of other people's plates. Family near and far miss Herbie in different ways. Everyone experienced this great man differently. Here's niece Sarah Nahir. I've known my Uncle Herbie for so many years, all my life, right? I think the one point that I could place on my Uncle Herbie that I have learned and I have taken him with me all my life until today is the point of observance. You have a good joke on that one. But seriously, observance, watching people, listening to them, looking at them and observing them, and then coming to lots of different conclusions that you wouldn't come to if you didn't do that in the first place. I can tell today a person who's got a backache a mile away just from his gait. Well, Uncle Herbie, he was the best. I had two Uncle Herbies. One died young and one died old, and I missed them both already. So now, what do you do when someone so grand passes away? We have to leave our own legacy. All you can do, I'll say, listen, my dad lived every day of his life. And I was closer to than anybody else. He lived every day. He never complained. He didn't complain about all his aches and pains or limitations. All his frustrations were in disappointments about what could be better than it was. He had challenges, and he didn't let that take away from what he had. He also had it very good. He had his tough side, but he had a family. He, he got a lot of what he was coming to him. As long as anybody who knew my dad is alive, they'll be able to make an effort to communicate that as long as, as their mind is there. Enjoy your life. Life is a gift. Life is a gift. you got to keep going forward. All of us will get knocked on our rear end. you got to get up. you got to dust yourself off, and you have to enjoy things because we've been very blessed and privileged to have the life we have and to really enjoy it, to really embrace all the good. See the good. Try to not get distracted by the bad. I try to remember on the tougher days that my dad really enjoyed people. It's cliche, but it was a life well-lived. His legacy is a ton of people who were glad they met him and were better off because of it. And I try to remember all the positive aspects because some days are harder than others. Enjoy life. He really did. He really, it sounds cliche, but it's a gift. And he had a good time. He was silly. He was fun. He was capable. And he didn't waste too much. He enjoyed things. He enjoyed a lot of things. He was so silly and so upbeat and playful, and he could kibitz, and that's a good way to go through the world. Your days will be better. He was really wonderful that way. Larger than life, enthusiastic, 
devoted to family and friends, fun, just the most amazing father, always there for me. That's all I can say. Herb's passing left a scrub-shaped hole in many of our hearts. Though his funeral was held outside on a bitter cold day in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, it was attended by many close family and friends, each of whom took the time to share so many kind stories that the rabbi had to rush us all along so we didn't freeze. There's no replacing someone as grand as my Zadie Herbie, but there's one thing I know for sure. His memory is a blessing to us all. Though his passing will always be difficult, it has brought his children and his grandchildren and all who loved him closer. And we're all better off just for knowing him. Some of the very positive things that have occurred between the siblings is that for a year we would do almost a nightly yard site at 9 o'clock. No matter where we would be, we would have a Zoom meeting and a Zoom conference to which we would talk about my dad and about our family. David, Diane, Jeffrey, and myself, we would go on teams and talk about dad, recount stories and memories, laugh a lot, and say Kaddish every night. I recorded that every day for the 11 months of his Kaddish. We would start off very good, and then we would start off very honest and negative, and we'd have some brawls. But none of that meant anything, because clearly my dad would have loved that. Clearly he could not be more proud and happy than to have four of us talking every night really about us and getting closer. And that was a great honor that we paid to my dad. Since Dad is gone, there's been a lot of ups and downs. There are days when the pain of his loss was so palpable. The hole was so large. You have, I have, such a history with my father, and it's deep. It's being raised by him, idolizing him in many regards for who he was, and having a collection of very unique experiences that I can't fully explain to other people. There's part of the lifetime of experiences with Herbert Mendelssohn that is not capable of being communicated. And as I go along in life and have reached the age of my mid-50s, I look back and I think, it was wonderful to be with Dad. They were golden era, golden times. And over this year, you feel, or I feel, or I felt, a bit of the loss of Camelot. And he was our captain, our captain in pointing the boat in the direction of life, in the direction of our career, our orthopedics, our medicine. The focal point for me of much of my social life, Friday night dinners were with dad and family. Any free time, I would stop by and grab him in the car and go run errands and visit people. Having my Alexa next to my bed that I would just drop in on him at nighttime and talk or play music for each other. And that's gone. And it's finite. And you face some of the hard, cold reality of life. It is a gift from God. It's special. It's unique. And you're kept alive only by the memories of those who remember you. Even the cousins held a monthly game night to reconnect after Herb's passing. A Kaddish of its own sorts. I think Dad would be so proud of his children in the way that they have behaved and pitched in with their unique skills to help get through this time and help maintain the spirit of what he was about. Each one of us, all four of his children, are different, 
but there is that commonality of, as I like to say, the herbonics that we can share. And that's a good thing. And that's a joyous thing. And though we will always miss him, there's one person who misses him most of all, who loved him from the very beginning. Here's grandson Carl Levine doing a reading at Herbie's funeral. I found a letter written about him by a Phyllis Fruman from April 2nd, 1951. It's actually not a letter, it's an essay. And it says, I do not like to write essays. As a matter of fact, I feel that this is one of the most boring things one can do to pass the time. The only reason I'm writing this one now is because it was forced upon me. There's one subject I know more about than any living or dead person, and this will be the subject on which I will write this essay. My boyfriend is wonderful. Whoever first coined the expression tall, dark, and handsome was describing him whether they realized it or not. It is difficult to describe him because one must gaze upon looks like these to appreciate them. He is an even six feet tall. His hair is dark brown and wavy. His eyes are blue, clear, and knowing. He has a strong face, one which reflects courage, sincerity, and integrity. He has, without a doubt, the biggest muscles in the world. His chest is also enormous, and I feel that I can safely say that he is, figuratively speaking, as strong as an ox. Yet he does not use his strength to bully people around, but he uses it to help people in any way he can. I would not be absolutely truthful in saying he is moody, but I would describe him as very changeable. When with a crowd, he is gay and carefree, but at times, he is very quiet and thoughtful. It is best to leave him alone at these times because he becomes irritable and very grouchy. To many people, he may appear happy-go-lucky, but inwardly, he is very serious. He wants a lot out of life, and he has the ambition and drive to work for what he wants and eventually get it. He dislikes all kind of prejudice and snobbishness. He doesn't feel that one person is better than another, and he likes everyone. It is easy to see why he has a lot of friends. He isn't jealous of people and doesn't envy anyone. This is easily understood because he has no reason to. He enjoys being with people of any age. He can mix with a young crowd or an older one. He has a friendly manner about him and a personality that attracts everyone. He doesn't care for dressing fancy or having a lot of money to throw around, as most young boys do, but he is interested in the serious things in life as achieving his goal of being a doctor, having a nice home and family, and quite a happy life. He is a lot of fun to be with and has a wonderful sense of humor. If anyone read this essay, they would probably think that I'm just trying to describe the perfect boy. My boyfriend is not perfect. He has many faults, just as everyone has, but I think his assets greatly overshadow them. In summation, I would like to say his looks are comparable to that of an Adonis, his character is above reproach, and his virtues are to be envied. Got an A-. minus. <laughs> and to this day, she still thinks of him like that. He's the most decent, most wonderful man who ever walked the earth. He's a total doll. I love him so much. And he's nice, he's kind, he's brilliant, he's handsome, he's just everything that's top of the line. We all miss him dearly, and while Herbie wasn't one to give out advice on a whim, if there's one piece of advice Herb Mendelssohn would like to share with all of us, it would be this. All you need is the one thing that is never enough of time. Time is the stuff life is made of. I don't like tinas. I don't want to carry tinas. You rust out from inside. But most importantly... Be a victor, not a victim. 
The Herb Mendelssohn Story is a production of Conversa Podcasting. This episode was written and produced by Hannah Levine. Thank you for listening. Thank you.